Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. We are entering the final few months of our year in the story. That's what we've been calling it. It's something that we started back in August of 2018. We began this year in God's story, um, and we did so for, for a lot of different reasons. But one of the biggest ones is that the Bible so often feels confusing and inaccessible. I mean, it's, it's big, right? I brought this. Usually I just have my iPad, but I brought a real Bible with me this morning. It's huge. Like, look at it. It's heavy. My arms are getting tired. <laughs> this one in my hand has almost 2,800 pages. It's got 66 books. 1,189 chapters, and over 23,000 verses in it. And many of those verses have been misinterpreted and misapplied and mishandled in ways that have caused a lot of people a lot of pain and confusion. It's big, it's dense, it can feel inaccessible, it can feel confusing. Quick show of hands, how many of you have heard a Bible verse used to kind of prop up one ideology and then later heard a Bible verse, a different one, used to prop up an opposing ideology. Raise your hands up. Have you ever done that? Wow, that's a lot of us. How is that possible? How, how can we use verses from the exact same big book, take them out and use them to actually work against each other, to combat each other? I believe this happens because we love Nothing more than to grab a couple of verses out of their context and use them to make whatever point we are trying to make. And I think that's what makes this year in the story so vitally important. You see, because if we ignore the context and the genre of the Bible, we are destined to completely miss what God is trying to say through the people who wrote it. And just like any story, if we remove or reorder parts of it, we are bound to misunderstand it, right? If we start with the end or we finish with the beginning or we remove big chunks of it that we don't really like, we're bound to miss what God is really trying to say. So thus far in our year in the story, we've spent a lot of time at the beginning of the story. In fact, that's where we started in Genesis, right? We spent a lot of time there. We did an entire series on kind of Genesis 1 through 3 and creation and how everything got started. So that's how we began this whole year in the story. We then worked our way through a lot of the big story of the Old Testament by looking at Israel's history and prophecy. Right? And that was a, a big chunk. That's kind of the rest of the Old Testament. History about God's people, the people of Israel, and then prophecy about what was to come. We spent time in the beginning of the New Testament, looking at the life of Jesus in the gospel accounts. We've talked about the first church from the book of Acts. And then we've spent quite a bit of time at the end of the story in Revelation. 
And we did an entire series called Heaven and Hell and Other Things We Don't Understand Very Well. And we looked at all of those different things that come in the end of the story. Now, take that off really quick. I want to show you something without epistles on there. There's a big gap, right, where it was before. Well, now there's a really big gap. There it is. You see how there's a gap there, right? Okay, so we've, we've kind of left out a chunk in God's story. We've done so on purpose because we wanted to kind of end the year by really diving deep into this portion. And this portion, as you've seen, is called the epistles. And epistles is a term derived from an old Greek word that simply means letters. And these letters were written by various pastors to churches or church leaders in the decades after Jesus rose from the dead. The epistles vary in many different ways, right? They have different authors and audiences and purposes. So instead of kind of just overviewing all of them, to really get a sense for the epistles, we're going to spend this part of our year in the story just diving really deeply into one of them. So today, we begin a teaching series on this letter called Ephesians. And we begin this morning, we begin the series this morning by looking at Ephesians like I said earlier, differently than you probably ever have before. We're going to do our best to put ourselves in the context of the original audience and hear the letter like they first heard it. So I want to begin by setting the scene for us. So we first hear about the city of Ephesus in the Bible in a book called Acts, right, which records the beginning of the church. The long name for the book of Acts is called Acts of the Apostles. So it's right after Jesus rises from the dead, the first church begins, and this book of Acts has the whole history of the beginning of the first church. Now more specifically, we hear about the city of Ephesus in the second half of the book of Acts, when it starts talking about Paul. Because the apostle Paul, you see, he goes there to the city of Ephesus on one of his, what are called, missionary journeys. So Paul is this pastor and church starter who travels all over the Near East telling people about Jesus and then starting churches. And then he writes letters back to those churches and church leaders to help them navigate through various kind of theological and cultural issues of the time. These letters make up the majority of the epistles we were just talking about and actually a large part of the New Testament as a whole. Paul's an important guy. He started a bunch of new churches, these early churches, and he wrote letters back to them that are actually filled inside of our Bible here today. Acts chapter 19 tells us that Paul spent around three years in the city of Ephesus, around 54 AD, which means that was about 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, if you're kind of keeping the chronology in your mind, right? So Jesus died, he's buried, he rises from the dead, the church begins about 20 years later, Paul's been traveling all over, helping start churches. He's had this radical conversion. If you remember, he, he comes to faith on, on the road to Damascus. He goes blind. Jesus talks to him, and he says, come, quit persecuting me and place your faith in me, right? And so Paul does that, and he travels all around. So it's about 20 years after he spends three years in the city of Ephesus. And during his time in this city, there was this explosion of people coming to faith, of people placing their trust in Jesus, and not just in that city, but actually all over what was called Asia Minor, which is the region all around Ephesus. In fact, so many people were placing their faith in Jesus and leaving their old lives behind, it actually started causing a bunch of problems in the city. So there was this guy named Demetrius, and Demetrius in the city of Ephesus, this is all recorded in Acts 19 and 20 if you want to look through it. Demetrius was a silversmith. And Demetrius' big business was making these little figurines of a goddess called Artemis. 
Now, Artemis was kind of the, the goddess of this city in Ephesus, right? And so he was the silversmith. He made these little statues of Artemis. And so then all these people come to faith in Jesus, and guess what happens? They stop buying his statues, and he gets super upset, right? So nobody's buying his statues. He and the other silversmiths, they all put together this huge revolt. They actually go to where the church is being held. They break in. They start, like, throwing this huge riot. Paul is acting really intense. He's, like, trying to break through people to get inside, but everybody's holding him back, and he can't get in. And then they say, Paul, I think it might be time for you to go. So Paul spends three years in the city of Ephesus, and there's such an explosion of faith that, I mean, it literally kind of turns the city and the region upside down. So Paul, after all this, he, he leaves. He really flees for his safety and goes to a place called Macedonia to work with churches there. Paul continues on various missionary journeys, doing the same thing, traveling, starting churches, writing letters back to them for the next eight years until he finds himself in a Roman prison for sharing the gospel. And from this jail cell, he writes the letter we now know as Ephesians. Now, it's worth noting here that not everyone thinks that Paul wrote this letter. So his authorship was kind of universally accepted until modern times. And in modern times, scholars are pretty split on whether Paul wrote it or not. Others believe that it was a, another early church leader using Paul's name or possibly writing on Paul's behalf. If he was in prison, he couldn't get a letter out. Maybe they were writing on his behalf. Now, I honestly don't think that the authorship has much bearing on the content of the letter, but I do think that the internal and external evidence points to Paul as the most likely either author or one that dictated the letter to somebody who wrote it. So that's the way I'm going to teach it. But I just wanted to mention that, just full disclosure, right? So Paul is in a Roman prison about eight years after he left Ephesus and 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And it's from that jail cell, he writes this letter to the churches in Ephesus and all over Asia Minor. Now here's a map if you're curious. This is all modern day Turkey. So you see Ephesus in the box down there and this whole kind of Asia Minor, that, that South Asia area is where this letter actually went to. In fact, of all of Paul's letters, Ephesians is the least specific to individual church issues and the most broadly addresses kind of all churches in general in that area. In fact, most manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts we have of the letter include a blank spot at the top where individual churches would fill in their name or their area. So basically they would get it and they would copy it all down and they would write their name and letter and then they would copy all the next thing down, put a big blank space and give it to the next church so they could write their name and they could have their own copy of it. This happened all over Asia Minor. And here's where I really want us to try to put ourselves in the shoes in the context, in the culture of one of those early churches. So let me describe what they would have been like. The first big thing to know is that these churches gathered mostly in homes during the first century. Here is what these homes looked like. So you can see they were multi-level. Sometimes they had an outside barrier, sometimes they didn't. At the bottom there, it says courtyard, where the chickens are and that person is, and there's some goats there, right? That courtyard is actually where most church things were held. So everybody would kind of sit all around the courtyard on different levels. And then up there on the second floor in the living space, whoever was talking, whoever was reading, whoever was kind of leading the discussion would be up there kind of leading that first church. And so as you can imagine, depending on the size of the home and depending on the size of the gathering, it could end up getting pretty cramped in there. Not just with people, right, but with dirt and with animals and with all different storage and things. I mean, this was, this was their house. This was all that they had. And so 
Churches didn't meet really in places like this. They met in homes in the first century, like the one behind me. That's the first big thing to know. The second big thing is that these early churches, they did not have a Bible like we do. They had portions of the Jewish Bible, which we now call the Old Testament. But when they gathered together, most of their spiritual discussion centered around telling the story of Jesus. It was something that we now call oral tradition. They just, they just talked through stories. They told about Jesus. They told about their experiences with Jesus, what they had learned from other people. Then the other thing that they had were letters, letters from early church leaders. And like I said, these letters were usually copied after they received and then passed along to other churches in the area. And they now make up a large portion of our New Testament. Now, this was a big deal when they got a letter, right? I mean, like a a big, big deal. Everyone would kind of gather around. There would be palpable anticipation in the air. Hey, we got, a, we got a letter from one of the church leaders. Let's all gather around. Let's read it and let's discuss it. I brought with me a copy of the oldest um, letter to the Ephesians that we have. This is one of the oldest manuscripts of the letter that we have. So that's what it looked like. It was on something called parchment right, or papyrus. They were two different times. This one is actually papyrus. So it's made from a plant that was copied down. And then what would happen is it was rolled up Right? And it was stuck in the messenger's bag, and then they were able to take it with them wherever they went. Now, when a new letter came to a church, they would all gather together to read it out loud. Right? They would sit down, like I said, in that courtyard area. Somebody would get up on that second floor, and they would read it together out loud. And then, after they read, they would discuss it and interpret it together. So, this morning, we're going to do the same thing. We are going to read the letter Ephesians out loud. And then for the next seven weeks throughout this series, we're going to discuss it together. So earlier when I said we're going to do it a little bit differently, that's what I meant. All right? Now, not only did the first church who got this letter read it aloud and then discuss it, think about it like this. The vast majority of churches who have looked at this letter over the last 2,000 years have done the exact same thing. They've had it read aloud, they've listened to it, they've soaked it in, and then they've discussed it and interpreted it. Now, I know, I know this might be a little bit different than what you're used to. I know it's probably more scripture than you're used to reading or hearing at one time, but I think, I really think that there is incredible value in hearing it all together, just like the first audience would have heard it. A couple of quick things I want to mention before we actually dive in and read the letter. So first thing is, you may not like or agree with everything in this letter. And that is totally okay. Some of it may be confusing. Some of it may be frustrating. But the purpose of this morning is not to interpret. We're not going to talk through each passage. The purpose of this morning is really just to read it aloud. The interpretation and the discussion of it will come over the next few weeks. Now, the second thing is that I'm not just going to do this alone. In fact, a couple of leaders here at Restore, Sally and Bob, are going to come up, and they're going to take turns reading it with me. In the early church, not many people were literate. Right, So the ones that could read often took turns reading. Now, that is not an indictment on your literacy, necessarily. Okay, You can probably read. That's not why we're doing this. But just know in that early church, that's why they did this really often. So Bob and Sally are going to come up here and join me. Now, along those same lines, I'm actually going to discourage you from reading along. Okay, I know that sounds weird. So if you've got your Bible out, I would love, you don't have to, but I would love for you to put it away. I would love for you to just really sit and soak and listen to this read aloud 
over you. All right? I know that sounds weird. Don't read the Bible right now. Okay? That's what I'm saying. But what I want you to do is really listen. I want you to experience it the way that first church and the way churches all over the world for thousands of years have experienced it. Now, lastly, there are a couple of terms in here that you may not be familiar with, so I want to quick clarify them before we begin. The first one is Gentile. So Gentile just means anyone who's not a Jew. That's what a Gentile is. All right, number two is the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. So Christians believe that we have one God who eternally exists in three equal persons, Father, Son, that's Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit from God comes to live inside each and every person who's placed their faith in Jesus. So when Paul says in the letter, the Spirit, that's what he's talking about. And then the last thing is somebody's name. This guy's name is Tychicus. And this is Paul's friend who actually delivered the letter to this early church. All right? So here we go. Put yourself in the shoes of this first century church. Now, a couple of things to remember about this first church, right? It it was not a great time to be a Christian. You know what I mean? Like, it it was actually really difficult. It was persecution that was running rampant. In fact, during this time, all of Asia Minor, this region that we're talking about, was under Roman rule and under an emperor named Nero. And Nero was not a guy that liked Christians. In fact, he was probably the most infamous persecutor of Christians in the history of the world. He used to put Christians on stakes and light them on fire to be the light at the parties that he threw. This was not a good guy. It was a hard time to be a Christian in this time and in this place. If you had a business, most likely when people found out you were a Christian, you weren't getting business anymore. Poverty ran rampant in the church during this first time. There was disease, there was hard times, and you had, I mean, medical care wasn't great to begin with, but if, you found, if they found out you were a Christian, getting medical care was even harder. So when you think about it like that, any encouragement that you could have was like life support, right? So for these early Christians, coming to that first church, being in that house, sitting on that dirt floor in that courtyard with the pigs and the chickens and the donkeys and the goats, like that was everything they looked forward to. That was their family. Those are the people keeping them, a lot of times, literally alive, giving them food, giving them money. And one big piece of encouragement was when a church leader sent a letter. And I'm telling you, that, that time when they got together was unlike any other time, but the times they got together when the letter came, I mean, that was what they really, really looked forward to. So think about it. You, you're in this first church. You're having a really hard time. You're being persecuted. You don't have much money. And you hear from some other people in your little church family that a letter from Paul, your founding pastor, has come. I mean, like, you could just feel the excitement in the room. People were rushing, finishing up all that they had to do, finishing up their jobs and their chores and all that to get to the home where they met. And they were all scrunching in, right? And it, it was probably hot and it probably smelled, but they did not care They did not care because a letter from their founding pastor was there to give them encouragement to help them navigate through the difficult times that they were navigating through, right? So they rush in. They sit together, jam-packed in that courtyard, and then Tychicus and an early church leader from your church runs in, and they pull the scroll out, and they've got the letter. Here's what it says. This letter is from Paul, 
chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing himself to us through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is that plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit, you see, is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you the spiritual wisdom and insight so that you may grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are rich and glorious in their inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him the head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fulfills all things everywhere with himself. Once you were dead because of your disobedience of your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work and in our hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. 
By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved, for he has raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So, you, so God can point us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. You were once far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us, he united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our, our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought the good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer stranger, strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are in his house, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming, by the way, that you know, you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight in this, into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading the good news. 
Though I'm the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. Chosen to explain to everyone the mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this is to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was God's eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please, don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honored. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. Then you will be made complete with the, all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely, infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Therefore I, a prisoner serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. However, he has given each of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. 
Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the ungodly do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly, eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, 
rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. For husbands, this means love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church, he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean and washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on earth. Parents, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Again, mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on the salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. 
Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I am in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So pray that I will keep speaking boldly for him as I should. To bring you up to date, Tychicus will give you a full report about what I am doing and how I am getting along. He is a beloved brother and a faithful helper in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. So that's it. That's the letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding area. It's been read just like that in hundreds of languages across countries all over the world. And this scripture and others like it have been helping people experience the grace and hope and love of Jesus for thousands of years. Matt, Taylor, and Hans are going to come back up. We're going to conclude today's gathering the way we're going to conclude each gathering during this series on Ephesians, with communion and with a hymn. Again, communion is something that followers of Jesus have been doing ever since he sat around the table with his disciples the night before he was killed on the cross. You know, it's funny, y'all, over the last couple of weeks, I've told a few different people um, what we had planned for this series, hymns and communion every week and reading the entire letter of Ephesians out loud. And most people, when they heard the plan, they got kind of a funny look on their face and they said, why would you do that? <laughs> and here's why. Please don't miss this. I want us to understand that we are all deeply connected to God's great story, one, but also to our brothers and sisters in Christ who have done these very same things for 2,000 years. This isn't just some, some once-a-week self-help hour designed to make us a, a little bit more moral of a person. This gathering here at Restore is a part of something so much bigger and so much better than we could ever imagine, something called the family of God. The family of God. Take time this week to dwell on the significance of being a part of the family of God. Not just here, but with all people throughout all time. Also, take time this week to read back through Ephesians as you prepare your heart for the rest of this series. Because next Sunday, we'll dive into it together. Would you stand with me? Those that are going to be giving out communion are going to make their way to the front and pass the trays up and down each row. We've got grapes representing the wine and crackers representing the bread. If you are part of the family of God already or you would like to be, please, as it's passed by you, grab a grape, grab a cracker, and feel free to eat it. Take them whenever you are ready. This is a little time for you to just reflect and soak in the fact that you are a part of the family of God. Not just at our local church, 
not just in this city, not just in this state, not just in this country, but in every place and throughout all of time for thousands of years in hundreds of languages all across this great world. You are a part of it. No matter who you are or what you've done, you have a place in the family of God. One last thing. I lied earlier when I said that was the whole letter. I saved the last two verses for right now. I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to read them over you. And I'm going to pray. We're going to sing and share communion. Peace be with you, dear brothers and sisters. And may God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you love with faithfulness. May God's grace be eternally upon all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our prayer, God. Unite us together as your family. Not just with each other in this room, but with every believer in every nation throughout all time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.